0: We are not biased because we are selfish or we are unintelligent. We make these errors because we are evolved to be this way. We want to save our energy, protect our client group, and we don't want to take a risk.
1: Today on In Session, Leading the Judiciary, we talk with Uk Ong, professor of psychology at Yale University and author of Thinking 101, How to Reason Better to Live Better. According to An, we are all susceptible to thinking errors, not because we're stupid, selfish, or immoral, but because our brains are hardwired to make quick decisions in order to keep us safe. Sorting new things into old boxes can save us time, but can also lead to misguided decision-making in the short term and stifle innovation, while costing us time, energy, and money in the long run. Through awareness, critical thinking, and practice, we can overcome these biological biases to achieve better outcomes for ourselves and our organizations. Cognitive psychologist uk ans thinking course at Yale helps students examine the thinking errors that cause many of the problems they face every day. It's not only one of the university's most popular courses, but it also inspired the book we are discussing today. On received Yale's Lex Hickson Prize for Teaching Excellence in the Social Sciences in 2022. Her research on thinking biases was funded by the National Institutes of Health, and she is a fellow of the American Psychological Association and the Association for Psychological Science. Special thanks to today's host, Lori Murphy, Assistant Division Director for Executive Education at the Federal Judicial Center. Lori, take it away.
2: Kyung, welcome to the podcast. We're so happy to have you. Thank
0: you for having me here.
2: It's a pretty bold statement to say that cognitive psychology and the work that you do can make the world a better place. You start the book out that way, you end the book saying, yeah, I'm pretty sure that it can. So what does that mean to you? So cognitive psychology covers all aspects of
0: human cognition, such as thinking, memory, language, learning, perception, and decision-making. So in particular, I study how people think. My own thinking got better as I do the research on this. Hopefully, I can share these lessons with other people and you know they can apply it to their own lives. I think we commit a lot of thinking biases. And uh, what does it mean to be biased, right? I think it means that we can talk about how we can be fair to other people and also to myself as well. There's no magic wand, but it's it's a you know work in progress. So we can hopefully
2: move on to more and more fair world. And yet, you also say that the book is not about what is wrong with people. Help me understand this seeming contradiction. So let's consider confirmation
0: bias because it's one of the most well known uh, biases. And it's basically what the name says Uh, we have a tendency to confirm what we already believe. So, as an example, if you believe that John is guilty, then you may look for evidence to prove that John is guilty. And even when you're presented with ambiguous evidence, you may interpret it as supporting John's guilt. And this can occur even if you're a highly intelligent person. And if you strive to make the most impartial judgments, it happens because we have evolved to think this way. So for example, you are a gatherer and you go to a forest and you found delicious fruits. So now you have a hypothesis that that specific forest has delicious fruits. So next time when you need fruits, what would you do? you go to the same forest rather than trying different forests. And that's exactly how the confirmation bias works, right? If you believe that first forest has a great fruits, you go back to that because it's less risky and it saves our energy. Bloodletting is my favorite example for confirmation bias. So in traditional medicine, people practiced bloodletting which is the, when whenever people got sick they let the bad blood out and they hoped that that uh, would cure the people and that was you know used in the western society people used bloodletting for over 2000 years and george washington presumably died of bloodletting when he had a throat infection so the question is how could these people believe in bloodletting so long And the reason is whenever people got sick, people believe bloodletting works, so they tried it. And then most of the time, people just spontaneously recover. So based on that confirming evidence alone, they believe that bloodletting works. And what they should have done is that when a person gets sick, they should not try the bloodletting and see what happens. It feels risky, right? If you already believe that bloodletting works, if you believe that's an effective method, how would you not try it? So even if we have a good intention of curing people, helping people out, we end up committing a confirmation bias and let the
2: bloodletting prevail. So we do this all the time in organizations. A policy or a procedure seems to work and we just keep doing it and looking at the evidence that confirms our belief that this is working when it sounds like what you're saying is we should actually test against that in some way. Exactly. So that's where the leadership comes
0: in. So even if the people feel that it is safe to just get by with what has been working, there's no guarantee that that's the best method there can be actually a better method. And also and sometimes it might have been a bad method, right? Just like the bloodletting, it killed George Washington. So the method you are using could have been actually hurting the, your organization.
2: You mentioned that even very smart individuals can be susceptible to confirmation bias. In the judiciary, we have a lot of long-tenured, very learned and skilled leaders and individuals. In the book, you say that sometimes being smart makes it easier to fall prey to confirmation bias or, or other thinking biases. Can you talk about that?
0: I talk about two studies in the book. One is that uh, the participants were Stanford students. Uh, some believed the death penalty. Others did not believe in death penalties. And when they're presented with just a simple descriptions of the studies, about the relationship between how death penalty increased or decreased, you know, the murder rates in a state. They were more or less agree with what the evidence said. But then when they presented with the details of the studies, like methods or how the data were collected or or during what period, these smart students could explain away the evidence that presumably counteracted the opposite to what they already believed. So once they see the details, they could say, well, this evidence was well, so-called evidence is not really valid because so-and-so problems. So smart people can actually do this in a more creative way so they could commit more confirmation bias. Another study, Republicans and Democrats, And they're presented with very complex numbers, uh, data, and they have to figure out the causal relationship between two variables. And if these two variables are totally neutral stimuli, like using a certain particular skin lotion and the skin rash relationship, then there was no difference between Republicans and Democrats whatsoever. <laughs> so people who are good at quantitative reasoning did better than people who are worse in quantitative reasoning. So it's just a matter of how good they are with the numbers. But then when exactly the same data were presented in the context of gun control and crime rates, then people who are bad with numbers are still bad, regardless of whether they will believe or not. But people who are good with the numbers use their quantitative reasoning skills only when the conclusion would support their political views. And if it looks like it's not going to support their views, they didn't bother to put in any effort to figure out what's going on with the numbers.
2: Wow. So being smarter actually can help us dig our heels in a little bit more and even be more susceptible to confirmation bias. Exactly. Yes. Let's talk about some other thinking biases or problems before we talk about some ways to uh, counteract them. What is the fluency effect? Why does it exist? How does it show up, et cetera? So fluency
0: effect is... Very simple. If it looks easy, then you think it is easy. (laughs) So it works most of the time, right? If a recipe requires only three ingredients, you think you can make that cake. And if you watch TikTok, they create a chopped salad in 30 seconds, then you think you can do it because it looks easy. But we can be oftentimes misled by this apparent fluency. So In one study, the participants were asked to answer a bunch of why questions, like why is the sky blue and why is there a leap day and so on. And for half the participants, they're allowed to search the internet for their answers. And the other half, they were not. And then after they did all this, there was a second phase. And now this time they're presented with a quickly new set of why questions like why are there holes in the swiss cheese or why does a dog eat grass and so on so this have nothing to do with what they already did in the first part but then they when they're asked to estimate how confident they are in answering these questions those who did the internet search in the first part were more much more overconfident than those who didn't Because just accessing all this Google information and internet search, it created an illusion to them that they can access this knowledge easily, so they feel like they can answer any questions. So this is where things can go wrong. So fluence is a very good cue in judging how well we can do something, but it can also carry over to a totally unrelated, irrelevant tasks as well.
2: And, and why do you think the, the fluency effect is so pervasive? Because it works most of the time. In real life, if you can easily mentally
0: simulate in your head, then it is something that you can do. Let's say you, you had not been riding on a bicycle for many decades, and you have to now decide whether you want to rent a bike during uh, some trip. And you kind of run it in your head, and it feels fluent, then you know you can still bike, right? So we use this so-called metacognition all the time to make a judgment on whether we can do something. And that's a very important part. However, it can go wrong in many ways. So for example, if you are hiring someone, and you have a job opening in your department, and the position requires excellent analytic skills. And you interview a candidate, and she speaks very fluently and confidently. This can inaccurately cause you to believe that she also possesses superior analytic skills, even though this fluency has only to do with the speaking skills. In real life, most of the time, People who speak very fluently also are kind of very highly intelligent and they're very skillful. So we can kind of conflate these two things and make a wrong judgment as a result.
2: So being confident in one area seems to assure us that we are confident in a completely unrelated area, even if that may or may not be the case.
0: Exactly. So there's my other favorite study is this. So people are asked to um, estimate how well some stocks will do. And the stocks with names that are easy to pronounce were predicted to do better than the stocks that have uh, unpronounceable names. And they found this even with the ticker code. It's just a random, you know, abbreviation of the share names. And whether that ticker code is pronounceable or not also affected people's judgments about how well that stock is going to perform.
2: In our world of education, we find that in programs we do that leaders can easily talk about what they might do or say to a colleague or uh, someone who works for them. And then they find that it is much harder when they have to actually practice using the words to say to the colleague or the person who works for them. Is that is that the fluency effect at, at work? Exactly. Exactly. And it
0: happens all the time to me. I mean, you know, I'm teaching the same content every year and right before the lecture, of course, I know what I'm going to talk about, and it creates an illusion that I can speak really elegantly. But I still have to kind of articulate at least the first two slides. I have to speak aloud what I'm going to say before I go to the classroom. Otherwise, if I get stuck at the beginning, if I start, you know, not speaking fluently, students get turned off, and so on. So it gets a vicious cycle. So. You really have to practice things out loud.
2: (laughs) Let's shift to talking about another thinking problem, uh, the planning fallacy. It seems a little bit like wishful thinking in terms of how we plan when it comes to budgets and projects and whatnot. So help us understand what the planning fallacy is.
0: So planning fallacy is we have a tendency to underestimate how long a task will take or how much it's gonna cost. The one thing that's for sure in life is that there are always something happening and we forget to uh, consider those obstacles. And this happens everywhere to anybody. I mean, believe me, when I was trying to revise my lecture on planning fallacy, I committed a planning fallacy there. Um, (laughs) I thought it's gonna take about three days. It took like three weeks for me. So the reason why it happens is that when we plan, we think about what's needed. It's step A, B, and C. We've got to do A, B, and C. And we can also estimate how much money it's going to cost. And when you think about only those things, it feels like the plan will be executed. And that's the whole point of plan. So we just figure out that you've got to do A, B, C, and D, and that that's all we need to do. But then in life, there's always something. So my solution to this is that I just double my estimate because, you know, as a reasonably smart person, I'm really good at rationalizing that it's going to go well. And in this time, it's going to be different. So I just always double my estimate. And when someone also tells me they're going to send me something by a certain day, I just assume that it's going to be at least 24 hours late. And that way I can actually uh, figure things out uh, a lot more smoothly.
2: I, I love that. Build in not just for the known obstacles, but the inevitable life happens obstacles. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. That's the thing. When we are planning things, we tend to
0: focus only on the task. and But there are many other things in life that happens
2: that have nothing to do with the task. Our audience is very aware of that. By the end of the day, the thing you set out to do never happened because of all the things that that came your way. So I think the, this planning fallacy is really relevant to our audience. One of the things in the judiciary and probably in any organization we bump up against is the concept of we've always done it that way. So
0: of course, confirmation bias is you know a good reason, right? But then there's also what is known as a loss aversion. So loss aversion is something that the pain that you feel from losses feel greater than the pleasure that you get from from the gains. So loss looms larger than gains. So for example, let's say, Lori, you like a box of dark chocolate, And you also like a bottle of red wine, and you are, you know, you equally like them. But if I give you a box of chocolate, and then I ask you, would you like to trade this with a bottle of wine? Then you might say no. But then on another occasion, if I give you a a bottle of wine first, and then ask you, would you like to trade this with a box of chocolate? You might also say no to that. And the reason why this happens is that people tend to value what they own more than uh, what they don't own. So because of that, if there's this some certain method that we've been using in the organization, then it's something that they own. And to switch to a new method feels like you're losing what you've been doing there will be a a cost in switching to a new method. There's also uncertainty. and people hate uncertainty, there's a risk and so on. But one way to overcome this is to pretend as if you have not been using any of these. And if you have a choice between method A and method B, what would you have chosen? That's one way of reframing the situation. If there's a more benefit of using a new method, then you should definitely switch to it. But we also have a tendency to focus more on the cost and negative information. So let's say you are traveling and you use Yelp to find out which restaurant to go for dinner. And there was like 90% of the reviewers said it's a great restaurant. But then there's one reviewer that said there was a hair in the food. And then that one negative review can kill <laughs> your appetite right there, even though 90% of the reviewers said it's an it's amazing restaurant. And just like that, when you think about the cost of switching to a new method, that negative information can actually kill all the you know, benefits you could have gained by switching to a new plan. And that is called a negativity bias. We tend to focus too much on the negative information. So here, we should also really think about the cost and benefit analysis really, really carefully and so that we don't get overwhelmed by the negative information.
2: How do I, as an individual, <laughs> uh, get the perspective to overcome this negativity bias and this loss aversion you talk about?
0: Understanding that people are sensitive to cost, right? They overweigh the negative information. So that means that that person might need extra incentive uh, to switch to the new new method. The other method is, you know, I use an analogy to cleaning up a closet. So if uh, when you have a bunch of you know, overcrowded closet, it looks like you can always rationalize, okay, I'm going to wear this on some occasion, I will lose that last 10 pounds. I'm going to get into that one. And so you cannot throw away anything because of loss aversion, right? But instead, you dump everything on the floor and pretend as if you are shopping all over again. So if someone is going to give you this pencil skirt that you cannot fit into, right? Would you take it even if it does not cost you anything? I would say no. <laughs> why would I take it right. right at that point? So you are changing the loss frame into gain frames. If I starting all over again, would I have done it that way?
2: I love that. If we were making this decision today, would we make based on the information we have? But it sounds like our brains are hardwired to look for the negative. And I'm just curious, why is that?
0: Problem one theory is this, back in old days, we did not have that much resources around us. So any loss could be a matter of life or death. So we have to be super sensitive to the loss. And gain is, yep, that's good, but that doesn't really change your life right away. So uh, maybe we were evolved to be sensitive to the loss
2: information. Something else you mentioned in the book was framing a question in two opposite ways. Can you elaborate on that?
0: So this is one of my favorite studies. So participants in the study, this was actually like a judge. They were asked to pretend that they were a judge making a custody decision. And half the participants were asked to choose which parent the custody should be awarded to. And the other half were asked to make the same decision, but it was worded in a different way, which parents should be denied the custody. And when they use the award phrase in the question, they tend to focus more on the positive features of the parents. But then when they use a denial question, then they tend to focus more on the negative features of the parents. So, I mean, what's the correct answer here, right? So to me, it feels like you just have to frame the question in two different ways. So should we adopt method X or should we reject method X? So if you just frame it in both ways and kind of somehow average your <laughs> intuitions, and hopefully that will be less biased judgments.
2: What strikes me about that is it's just really one word often. It seems almost that we're really counteracting several of the thinking biases that you mentioned which is really powerful. Uh Ukyung, you talk about perspective-taking being important and also insufficient by itself. So help us understand why perspective-taking is important, why it's insufficient, and how reframing might be a piece of this puzzle. When it comes
0: to... Factual information, fact checking is the most important solution. Just trying to take perspective is not gonna work. And the reason is this, we are overconfident in thinking that we understand what other people are thinking. So in one experiment, participants had to judge whether their friend is being sarcastic or serious. So let's say, you know, my daughter who is a very feminist, she says, a Barbie movie, what a wonderful idea right is she serious or is she being sarcastic and when it comes as a text message to me I have to judge whether she's being serious she wants to watch the Barbie movie with me this weekend or not then people are actually only at the chance level even if it comes from someone who that we knew really really well they were at 50-50 And it is kind of a humbling experience because, you know, I feel like I know what she meant. I'm pretty sure she's sarcastic. (laughs) And she also thinks that I understood what she intended to say, right? But when we did the fact checking, it was completely wrong. She really wanted to see the Barbie movie (laughs) because it's so well made. So, she never had a Barbie by, by the way, growing up. So I would have never guessed it, but I can be overconfident in my, uh, in, in my guess about what she wants. So we have to really un- believe this effect, right? We have to believe that we are overconfident in mind reading and we have to really ask the, the other person a question. So the way I use in my work life, is that even if it's a very clear meeting, so I have a uh, you know personal meetings with my graduate students all the time, and we lay out our next steps for the experiments, what needs to be done, and in my mind, it's really clear what the graduate students should do by next meeting, but we still write it out in a Google Doc and share it, and otherwise, I have no way of checking whether the graduate student really understood what was expected for the upcoming week.
2: It seems like this is the root of so many communication missteps between individuals is uh, assumptions. So we need to ask, and you also say we need to tell uh, more explicitly. How can leaders encourage the inclusion of different perspectives and ideas so that we combat, to the extent possible, these thinking biases, and we get the best out of our people.
0: This now goes back to the very first question you asked, probably the second question, uh, which was that, how can people have uh, thinking errors, thinking biases, when when they're not really wrong? So understanding that, I think is the most important step. That's one of the main themes that I wanted to carry through the book is that we are not biased because we are selfish or we are unintelligent. We make these errors because we are evolved to be this way. We want to save our energy. We want to conserve our, you know, clan. We want to protect our clan group. And we don't want to take a risk. We want to be, you know, we want to be loss-free and so on. But these things happen because of the way we were built. So, for example, I believed all my life that a yellow traffic light was yellow. And it was not until when my son was four years old asked me, why is a yellow traffic light called yellow traffic light? And I thought, what kind of question is this? And he said, Mom, just stop and look at it. And it's orange. And then I realized finally that yellow traffic light is orange color. And I, you know, believe me, good just go look at it. <laughs> it's orange. But it's not that I was dumb or I had any stake <laughs> at this this issue. It's just that since everybody called it yellow, I saw it as a yellow. So once we understand that, then hopefully people with a different views could be more understandable. It's just the way that you know they might see things differently because of the way that they grew up, because of the situation they are in. It's not that they're less intelligent. It's not that they're more immoral than we are. It's just a different perspective.
2: What else would you like our listeners to know?
0: Well, another thing is there's no magic wand <laughs> in fixing the thinking problems and also just simply knowing that people can make these mistakes is not a solution either. You really have to practice it just like, you know, exercise, diet, you know, and so on.
2: It you really really have to work hard. Okay, where can we learn more about you and your work?
0: My book is called Thinking 101, How to Reason Better to Live Better. And my email address is woo dot a-h-n at yale.edu. And I actually do reply to emails.
2: We can verify that. <laughs> yes, you do. Well, thank you, Ukyung. It's been a pleasure. And we've learned a lot today. Thank
0: you. <laughs>
1: Thanks, Lori, and thanks to our listening audience. To hear more episodes of this podcast, visit the executive education page at fjc.dcn and click or tap podcast. You can also search for and subscribe to this podcast on your mobile device. In Session, Leading the Judiciary is produced by Shelley Easter. Our program is supported by Angela Long, Anna Glashkova, and the entire studio and live production team. Thanks for listening. Until next time. This podcast was produced at U.S. taxpayer expense.